Well, we've been in, uh, we've been moving through the book of Genesis, and uh, we're nearing the end. Um, and this morning, as we take a look at the text, you'll see if if you've noticed in the bulletin, we've we're looking at Genesis 42 through 45. Now, I'm not doing that because I've spent so long in Genesis, and I'm just want to rush through the end. That's not what I'm doing. It's it's a it's a story that's a unity together, uh, but it's a lot of verses. I think 134 in total. So. I'm not going to read it all. Uh, I will summarize it. But before we get to unpacking this morning's Bible text, I would invite you to pray with me in preparation. Father God, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. We're asking that you would feed us with your living and active word. We need something to happen in our lives. We, we need you to teach us what we do not know. We need you to give to us what we do not have. And we need you to make us what we aren't yet, what you, what you desire for us to be. That the very character of Christ may be formed in us, all according to your eternal will. So God, would you give us an expectancy of mind, an attitude in the heart that wants to hear from you. Help us, each of us, to look beyond the mere man and long to hear from you, to receive the holy food of your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, again, like I said, a lengthy section from Genesis chapter 42 through 45. Um, this, uh, this is the story of how Jacob and his sons are reunited with Joseph and how they end up settling in Egypt. This is how this, this is the story gets us there. And I'll remind you that uh, Joseph's brothers, now Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, also named Israel. So these are the 12 tribes. There are 12 sons. Uh, Joseph's 11 brothers had sold him into slavery. Sorry, 10 brothers, 10 older brothers had sold him into slavery. He is now in Egypt. He has risen over a series of 13 years. He's risen to a place of prominence. Um, and I would suggest that Pharaoh has recognized the gift of God on him, his set-apartedness, before God, he has some unique skills and talents, able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, able to manage the famine that, is, that, is, that was prophesied through Pharaoh's dream and interpreted by Jacob, able to manage the prosperity of seven years and then manage that prosperity through seven years of famine. He is now second in command. His, broth, his brothers uh, being sent by their father to Egypt do not recognize him. And they come seeking, like many other the nations on the earth, they come seeking grain. This is part of a larger meta-narrative of how God would ultimately turn a family, a clan, into a nation. And I want to remind you what it says back in Genesis chapter 15, 13. This was the promise given to Abram, the patriarch. The Lord told him, know for certain that 
your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Egypt is that place. They are not initially afflicted, but they eventually will be. This is how they end up in Egypt. Now, before I summarize the story, what I want to do this morning is, is, is think, and maybe use this as a kind of interpretive lens or a, or a way to think through the text. I want us to think about how God works in our lives to form us into his people today. What are the things that God does in our lives? And I think we'll find that this story is instructive. We're going to see in this story, there are things that God does to save his people and form them into the character of those who would be his namesake. We're going to get to this in a moment, but I want to highlight one particular verse. You see, the, the brothers of Joseph uh, realize they're in some trouble. Things don't seem to be turning out well. They're very concerned about their situation. And they say to each other, what is this that God has done to us? And in that statement, they're initially seeing retribution for past sins. But we're on the outside of their experience and we're, we're looking down on this. We're, we're looking at what they're going through. We have this panoramic view and what we can see. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is really the takeaway from this story. What we can see is God testing them. What we can see is God showing grace to them. And what we can see is their forgiveness. So those three words, testing, grace, and forgiveness. Now, as we get to the text, beginning in chapter 42, I'm going to call this scene one. Jacob sends 10 sons to Egypt to buy grain. Now, he didn't send Benjamin, the youngest. He actually feared for his safety. So when the brothers come to Egypt, they don't recognize Joseph, who's the second command. They bow before him, seeking their favor. They think he's just an Egyptian official, an important one to be sure. But they are bowing before him. And at that moment, Joseph, recognizing his brothers, remembers his dreams. The dreams that he had dreamed, it says in 42 verse 9, he remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them. And if we take you back in previous chapters where Joseph shared his dreams with his brothers, in his dreams there was, they, the effectiveness, the effective outcome of the interpretation of it was that they were effectively bow, bowing to him, seeking to honor him. Now, in this moment, it seems that Joseph, for some reason, decides to test his brothers. And, and what he does is he accuses his brothers of being spies. He says, you've come to see the nakedness of the land, he says. Now, there, the brothers' objection to Joseph's accusations, what they end up doing is revealing certain family details to him. And so what happens there is Joseph agrees to keep Simeon until they come back with the youngest brother. Well, why didn't you bring the youngest brother? Oh, there's this brother? Well, I want to test you. Are you actually honest men? Tell you what, I'll keep Simeon. You come back with the brother. The brothers assume in that moment, that this turn of events is, is divine payback for their own uh, sin of mistreating Joseph and then selling him as a slave. And what they don't know is that Joseph understands their conversation because to that point, he'd been communicating through an interpreter. This is a great story. What he does then is he sends them on their way with sacks of grain and unbeknownst to them, he puts their own money back in the, the uh, that they brought to pay for it, back in the sacks. Along the way to Canaan, Back to Canaan, they discover, now again, they're without Simeon, but on their way back, they discover they need to feed their, their animals, their, their donkeys. 
they find that the, the money has actually been put back. And they say to each other, this is, this is where they say to each other, because they're fearful. Suddenly something doesn't feel right to them. The brothers say to each other, as I shared earlier, what is this that God has done to us? Well, when they return to Jacob, they tell him how they were treated, that Simeon remained in Egypt as a human pledge until they should return with Benjamin. Jacob decides he's not going to let Benjamin go back to Egypt. And they, they settle there for a while. He presumes that Simeon is lost to him. Now, some time passes. Chapter 43 through 44, 13. Some time passes. Their food runs out. Jacob wants to send his sons back to buy more grain. Now, Judah, in this situation, he tells his father, look, the only way that they can do that is if Benjamin comes. It's not going to happen. They won't sell us any grain. This was the deal. We had to bring back the youngest brother. Judah, in fact, at that point, pledges his own life to guarantee the safety of his brother. So the brothers return to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. And they explain to Joseph's servant, because now they've got to explain why they came back with their grain and all the money that they had intended to pay. They explained that the money that they had paid for the grain was in their sacks. They didn't know how it got there. But Joseph's servant assures them, this is, uh, this is in the text, your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Simeon is then brought out to them. And in a, an amazing sort of unfolding of events, Joseph has this feast prepared. He prepares a feast for his brothers. And again, his identity is still hidden from them. He inquires about Jacob. He sees Benjamin. And then the whole encounter pro uh, proves to be this emotionally overwhelming experience. He has to hurry out and weep by himself. Now Joseph returns. They serve the food at this feast. And then Joseph had it ordered that his brothers would be seated and then served by their birthright in age. The brothers are looking at each other. How does this guy know anything about Brothers marvel at this. And not only that, Benjamin is served a portion five times the others. Startled, the brothers just take it in. Now, Joseph sends them on their way. This is chapter 44. Joseph sends them on their way with the grain and then another test. Now, unbeknownst to the brothers, Joseph returned all their money. So they brought double the money to pay for the, the, the grain they had the first time. They brought more money to pay for the second grain. All that money's back in their sacks. And then a special silver cup has been put into Benjamin's sack. Not long after they depart, Joseph sends a servant. And they discover the cup in Benjamin's sack. That was scene two. Now to scene three. They come back to Joseph. Again, they still don't recognize him. He confronts them and he pronounces guilt on Benjamin. And Benjamin's consequence is that he must remain in Egypt and then serve him. That's your sentence. You, you tried to steal from me. Now you're my servant. And here's where Judah comes in and he pleads with Joseph, explaining that his own father will die if Benjamin does not return. This is the very fear that, that Jacob had in, in letting Benjamin go. He feared harm would come to him. And I'll remind you that, that both Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. She had died. And in Jacob's mind, Joseph was dead and gone. 
and all that was left was Benjamin. So he's very protective of Benjamin. But the, but the sons convinced him, unless Benjamin goes, we're going to starve. And now Judah sees. He's got to come back. He pleads with him. Judah offers himself as a substitute. Take me. Now in chapter 45. At this point, Joseph can no longer bear it. He sends everyone away except for his brothers. And as he is alone with his brothers, he reveals himself to them. This, of course, is a shock. The text says they were dismayed at his presence. And you can imagine all this going through their minds. We, we sold him. He was surely dead. We told our father he was torn apart by a wild beast. We brought his cloak back to Jacob. He's surely dead. And now they're looking face to face with the very one they sold into slavery, who now has all of this power in Egypt. Joseph acknowledges their sin. He acknowledges that they had indeed sinned against him. But he says that God had sent him, in fact. Yeah, you sold me, but, but God sent me. And he says this, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep you alive for many survivors. Keep alive for you many survivors. And then he tells them that he will provide for them in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They should go back and tell Jacob and bring all their clan to settle in Egypt. Joseph, this is verse 45 through the end of 25. Sorry, sorry, through the end of 28. Joseph then provides for his brothers, brothers in abundance in terms of supplies. And he gives them gifts. He sends them to back to Canaan to retrieve their father. And then the, the brothers arrive back in Canaan. They tell Jacob all of the abundance, all that has happened. And I, I, I've got to, I got to believe, even though the text doesn't tell us, they finally have to come clean with Jacob. Well, actually, Dad, we aren't really honest about that. We sold him as a slave. But he's in charge now. And he's going to save us. And that's not in the text, but you've got to imagine, what, Joseph's alive? Initially, Jacob didn't believe them. In verse 28 of chapter 45, Jacob says, after their explanation, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, that's a, a summary. It took longer than I really wanted it to, but this is a summary of, the, of these chapters. And all of these events were ordained by God. In all of this, the question I'm asking, what does God do? What has God done? And looking at this section again, I'll remind you what I see here. What has God done? Testing. There's his grace and ultimately forgiveness. So, First point, testing. Now, when you finish a, a course, class, university class, college class, high school class, whatever, there's usually a test at the end, right? That you, you do this to establish that you have some mastery over the, the course content. But I think we all get this, that testing isn't just what happens to you in a class. It's really all of life. Think of all of the ways, and just, just on the matter of patience, Think of all of the ways in your life that, 
that patience and endurance may be tested. From the simplest of activities, like driving, you see somebody driving erratically and unpredictably, your patience is tested. Or when, young parents, or parents of any age, when your kids misbehave, you might even say, you're trying my patience, right? Or you've got some goal in mind. You want to accomplish something, and it will be tested. That, that desire to, to accomplish that goal will be tested with weariness and with obstacles, with scarcity of resources or time. All of those things get in the way. And your faith, your faith may be tested. And maybe you're in that place today. Your faith might be tested through the crisis and suffering, the betrayal of a loved one, loss, grief. Why well, take it that God specifically allows testing in our lives to form us as his people? In our Bible text, the story as we laid it out, it begins with a famine. That's a test in itself, right? But that, that test of the famine opened up the opportunity for other tests. 42.2, behold, Jacob says, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. The choice before them was if we don't have supplies, if we don't have grain, we're going to die. What do you do? It's a test. And this was good for Jacob's sons because this test, first of all, exposed their own weakness. Maybe they had that sense that they were self-sufficient. We've got this. But they're faced with the famine. They're faced with the fact that nothing's growing. They're faced with the fact that things are dying. And unless we get some supplies, we're not going to survive. They were powerless to do anything about the famine, and they had to be dependent upon others. Now, here's what happened. We've already gone over this. But when they arrived in Egypt, Joseph accused the brothers of being spies to test them. And he knew them were not spies. He recognized them. But he wanted to determine that they were honest men. In fact, he, asked, he puts that in the question. And he kept them in custody for three days. This is not pleasant. They thought, we're just going to go buy grain. But then they get locked up. Three days. And, they, and Joseph offers them, again, they don't recognize him. They, he offers them a way for their genuineness to be proven. Were they truthful what they told him about their family? Now, Jacob, sorry, Jacob, Joseph knew that these had not been truthful men. Joseph knew that these had been conniving men. Joseph's testing them. On the third day, 42, 18 through 20, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. Now what this test did was it exposed the guilt of Jacob's sons. You see, they had assumed that Joseph was dead, but they believed in this moment with this test, with this trial, they believed that God was punishing them for it. We see this in verse uh, chapter 42, 21 and 22. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, 
Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now what they don't know, because Joseph's been working through an interpreter, Joseph heard it. He heard them say it. This is a test. Joseph is testing them. But I would suggest to you, God is testing them. On the second journey back to Egypt, after they had brought grain for their father and their families, and they're coming back to buy more, Judah admitted as much to Joseph after Benjamin was accused of stealing that silver cup. Judah says this to Joseph. Again, he doesn't know it's Joseph. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. The test exposed their sin. The test also had a positive effect in that it revealed their genuine concern. It brought something good out in them. It revealed a genuine concern for their father. Chapter 44. Again, this is about, about Benjamin not returning. He's pleading with Joseph. Again, Joseph doesn't, or, uh, Judah doesn't know it's Joseph. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants, the brothers, will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And that opened up an opportunity for Judah, for Judah to do good and to sacrifice, to, to set aside his personal well-being for the sake of another. And he pleads again, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Again, he's speaking to Joseph. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that I would find, that would find my father. All of this, the famine, their interactions with Joseph, all of this revealed their weaknesses. It taught them to endure hardship. It taught them to endure false accusations. And it taught them and instructed them to own up to their own sins. Now, because God knows all things, he already knows the hearts of all people. He knows your heart. And if, you're, if you belong to the Lord, what you need to know, what you and I need to know, we need to know our own hearts. We need to understand our own weaknesses. We need to understand our inclinations. We need to understand our sinful tendencies. We cannot relate rightly to God unless we know what is true about ourselves. And I'm not suggesting we can know absolutely everything. That we can somehow grasp the infinite knowledge of God and somehow internalize that. But we have to know the truth about ourselves. And that's what testing does. It exposes us for who we are. Through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says, I search the heart. I test the mind. I give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So know this. If you belong to the Lord, know that God will test you for your good. This is what it says in the New Testament letter from James. Familiar passage perhaps to many of us. Count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God wants to do in your life. That's what the testing is for, that you may learn to be steadfast, perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So know this. If you're going through tests and trials, know that God does not test you to toy with you, but he does it to form you. He does it to grow you to maturity. He wants you to have a life marked by daily dependence upon him. Life is full of tests and trials. What you do when you don't know what to do is an indication of where your heart is. And what should you do? In that section, James continues, if any of you lacks wisdom, and all of us have been there, we're in the midst of the trial and the test, and you say, I don't know what to do. The Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. When you humble yourself before God, in the midst of the trial and the test, and you plead with God for wisdom, when you soak yourself in his word, and you come under the authority of the scriptures, God will give to you what you need to endure that trial. So whether it's suffering, hardship, loss, disease, injustices done to you, what do you do? What should you do? You pass the test when you Seek God for wisdom and live in faith by his promises. Second, we'll look at grace. An understatement, to be sure, grace is a beautiful thing. <laughs> That's an understatement. But grace is also surprising, isn't it? It's surprising because it's often the opposite of what we expect. It's a kindness done for you, not because you deserved it, but simply as an act of generosity. In small ways, you, you dine out with friends and they pick up the check. Or, or you're, away, uh, you're away from home for an extended period of time, maybe on vacation, and someone has come and mowed your lawn or watered your flowers. What grace does is it reveals the beauty of the giver. Because true grace does not measure the worth of the receiver. That's gift-giving, isn't it? And I know we get this wrong, but true grace gives regardless of the worthiness of the receiver. That's what grace is. Grace reveals the beauty of the giver. Grace is beautiful because ultimately it reflects the very character of God. And I see grace in this story. Now, Jacob's sons knew that they had acted unjustly towards Joseph. We've talked about that. And, and I, can't, I, can't, I can't imagine that, that life for them was anything but the constant reminder of what they did, haunting them day after day after day. And now believing that Joseph is likely dead, their experiences now with this apparently hostile Egyptian ruler caused them to conclude 
that God is now judging them for their own sins, for their prior sins. In fact, they say this. Verse, uh, chapter 42, 21 and 22. They say to each other, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. I read this already. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now, in spite of Joseph's crusty demeanor towards his brothers, and we learned that this is an act, what they experienced, truly, setting aside how he interacted with them, what they ultimately experienced was the opposite from, from, the, from what they actually deserved. It was opposite from what they expected. It was opposite from one who we would think would rightly want to take some sort of retribution on his brothers. The very one who'd suffered at their hands is now showing grace. Grace. Synonyms are acceptance and, and favor. Jacob's sons went to Egypt to buy grain. And we see these examples in the text. And the first time they returned, with the money that they brought? They received food without paying. Did they deserve that? Every other nation is coming to Egypt buying grain. Joseph says, oh, here it is. Now, they think they're paying for it, but he puts the money back in their sack. It was Joseph's decision to be sure. But above that decision, I think I said this earlier, the decision was ultimately the Lord who ordained it to be. And what Joseph's servant said when, when the brothers questioned, look, when we, we left the last time, our money was in our sacks. We don't know how it got there. Well, the servant rightly explains. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. When Joseph, when Joseph, uh, when the brothers return uh, to, their, uh, to their father, let me get this straight. The brothers return again to buy grain. And Joseph did it again. And, and, and he put their money back in their sacks. And then what was in, it was embedded in another test, but it was truly gracious, wasn't it? He told them at that time, he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry. He wasn't even, how much is this worth? No, just as much as they can possibly carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Now, this is grace. And then after Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he did not demand a reckoning for their sin. Listen, he told his brothers, I'm going to provide for you. Now, in my mind, as the one who's, if I'm the one of the brothers who sinned against Joseph, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do? I, I guess we'll be his servants. I think, I think maybe we're going to have to work something out. Or maybe we'll die. He's the ruler. No, what does Joseph do? He says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you. You're going to have abundance. Not only that, the king of Egypt, and this is how you can see that the Lord is doing this. The king of Egypt affirmed it. He instructed Joseph to tell his family, Joseph, this is what you're supposed to tell your father and your brothers. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Jacob and his sons received food without paying. They were to enjoy the best of the land without regard to their past sins. They had done nothing, nothing at all to deserve these gifts. 
They, they received these gifts simply, get this, because they were Joseph's family. See, Pharaoh made it possible, right? They received these gifts simply because they were Joseph's family. Joseph and his sons mattered to Pharaoh because Joseph mattered to Pharaoh. Pharaoh cared about his stuff. Joseph mattered to Pharaoh. And anybody attached to Joseph mattered to Pharaoh. So here's the connection. So brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ today, you matter to God. Why? Why do you matter to God? Because you are in his son, Jesus, the son of God. You are in him by faith. So if you have truly looked to Christ in faith, you see in him a divine quality that is absolutely beautiful. When John, the gospel writer, introduced Jesus in John chapter 1, he tells us, for from his fullness, it's referring to Jesus, the Son of God, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, grace multiplied. That's what we have. You matter to God because you're in the Son of God. And Jesus matters to God. If you're not in the Son of God, there's no grace. But because you're in the Son of God, there's grace upon grace. And so that means that what belongs to the Son of God is for you as well. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. That's key. He has blessed us in Christ. Outside of Christ, we're not, we don't have this blessing. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, you try to add those up. I don't even think we can fully understand what those every spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places are, but I'm pretty sure that that's really good. Eternally good. Romans 8 it says this, We are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Grace. God has poured out upon us grace upon grace. Grace multiplied. And as we move to the last point here, it is the grace of God that makes possible forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, I know I've touched on this, but after Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, we might expect that he would toss them in prison. We might expect that he would find some way to make them pay. But what did he do? Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. But he didn't stop there. He acknowledged their sin. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. He is saying, yeah, you sinned against me. And it's not that that sin didn't matter. But above and beyond all of it, God was gracious to me. And God's grace to me extends to you. And therefore, I forgive you. I know the word's not there. But he's not counting their sin against them. Joseph dealt with his brothers like God deals with us. It says in Psalm 103, He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? How high is that? That's the measure of God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. Now I see in Joseph a kind of a a foreshadowing type of Christ. Uh, if, uh, a reminder uh, that a type is a, a, a true story or an event that, that prefigures some greater reality later. So what we see in Joseph is that he suffered because of the sins of his brothers. He suffered. He was enslaved. He was put in prison. He suffered. But it turned out that he saved his brothers through his suffering. Now, he was used mightily of the Lord, but he was just a man. In a much greater sense, and this is where the type comes in, the sinless Son of God suffered and died to save us. One of my most quoted Bible verses, I'm sure, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, his Son, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent his son into the world for just that reason. God sent Joseph to Egypt to suffer to save the family of Jacob and make a nation. Jesus was sent into the world by God the Father and he willingly came in order that he might suffer. He willingly did that. He offered up his life so that we might be forgiven. And that forgiveness is for you if you've truly believed. And I I pray that that is the case for you this morning. If you want forgiveness in Christ, if you want that, You've got to see things like God sees things. He has has tested you to expose the reality of who you are. He has poured out immeasurable grace in your life in order that he, without sacrificing his divine justice, in order that he might forgive your sin. And if you have believed, that is for you. Joseph's brothers asked, what is this that God has done to us? And I would ask the question this way. What is this that God has done for us? And I'll restate it. If you belong to the Lord, 
your life has and will be marked by testing. And that is meant to expose your weaknesses and show you that you're utterly dependent upon the Lord. Then God's testing opens our eyes to his grace. And it is only with the eyes of faith that you can see it. But if you are a child of God, you now see his boundless good, uh, goodness towards you. The way he has orchestrated your life to reveal that to you, that apart from his grace, you would have absolutely nothing at all. And it is the grace of God that makes possible his forgiveness. And I hope you know this. You and I are guilty before God. He is eternally righteous and just. But he gave his son. He sent his son into the world to suffer, to be tortured on a Roman cross, and to die so that the entire record of your sin could be cast as far as the east is from the west. So, brothers and sisters, embrace. Embrace testing with joy. Revel in God's grace and thank him for his mercy to cover your sin in Jesus, the Son of God, who is the exalted one forever. Amen. God, we are, we are small. We, we do not see. We do not have your vision. We do not perceive everything that we ought to perceive the way you perceive it. But Father, what your word does is it opens our eyes to the ways in which you work. And so, Lord, teach us, teach us in the midst of trials to look to you, to be taught by those trials, to be formed by those trials. God, teach us increasingly to revel in the beauty and glory of your grace. And Father, cause us to be ever eternally thankful for the forgiveness that you have given us in the only way that it could be made possible through your exalted Son, our Savior Jesus. Keep us faithful. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.